so this morning, as we look at the second half of the book of Esther, we're thinking about this topic of salvation. How does God move in impossible, seemingly impossible situations to bring salvation to his people? And I would just remind you that today is the day of salvation. That if you are here with friends or family, or maybe you've sat in church for years and years and years going through the motions, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that you would know what it is for God to set you free from sin, set you free from the fear of death, set you free from all those things that hold us back from experiencing the life that Jesus came to give. And so whatever that looks like in your situation, your life, maybe you're praying for someone that they would come to trust in Jesus for salvation. Maybe you have questions about your own faith. At the end of the service, after the sermon, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together And then after the Lord's Supper, when we're dismissed, if you have questions about your salvation, if today is the day that you've come here with a friend and you would want to pray with someone to trust in Jesus, as soon as we're finished with the Lord's Supper and people are being dismissed, know that we will be down here at the front and we want so much to be able to pray with you, talk with you about what it means to trust and follow Jesus. And so as we work our way through the book of Esther this morning, we're thinking about how does God bring salvation to his people? Esther chapter 5, verse 1. It says, on the third day, and remember Esther has gone into the king's chamber there to ask for his help. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, While the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. The phrase that I would point you to in verse 1 is where it says, on the third day. One of the Jewish commentaries on this verse says that God never allows his people in the Old Testament to remain in distress more than three days. Now, there are times, certainly, when it is more than three days. You think about the people in Egypt But you think about how Abraham and Isaac went up on the mountain, and it says in three days God provided the sacrifice. Jonah was in the fish, and on the third day, he's set free from the fish. Jesus is in the grave, and on the third day, he rises again. There's a theme that's going through Scripture of on the third day, God is working to bring salvation for his people. And so in the book of Esther, even though the name of God is never mentioned, we don't see God actively at work, it's phrases like this that show us how the book is connected to the big picture of the Bible, that God works in a very specific way on the third day to bring salvation for his people. Verse 2, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, favor that came from the Lord, And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. If you weren't here last week, Haman is the bad guy in the story. Haman is the one who is seeking to destroy all of the Jewish people. 
And so all of God's people have the threat of death hanging over their head. And in fact, in some way, the promise of death hanging over their head. So Haman is the one trying to cause this to happen. Verse 5. The king said, um, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now you might think, wait, that sounds like the first request that she made. It's because it is like the first request that she made. She makes the request again. And then you might think, man, I bet that really annoyed the king and Haman. No, no, she said feast. Like, they're not annoyed. Like, this is, their calendar schedules are not full. Like, they're just looking for another feast to go to. So they're not annoyed. They're not frustrated by this. They're just going to go to the feast that Esther has prepared the next day. Verse 9. So Haman goes out joyful and glad of heart because Esther said the word feast. It's like saying the word treat to your dog. Like, they're just happy. Like, life's going well here. So she said feast. Haman goes out. He's joyful. He's glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai, this is Esther's cousin, the one who is being used here to bring salvation for the people. When Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Let's say something here about the dynamics of of the situation. People who are insecure about themselves can be so fickle in the way that they treat other people around them. People who are insecure are not able to move forward in life because they see something good happening to someone else or they're so obsessed with what's happening in somebody else's life, they can't take control of their own life and they're just dominated. They're, be very careful, be very, very, very careful. If your emotions in life are dictated by what another person says or does, in that moment our insecurities are showing up because our identity is not found fully in Christ, our emotions and our actions in life are being dictated by someone else, some other set of circumstances. And Haman might be the most insecure person in the entire Bible. You're going to see this develop more in chapter 5, the way his insecurities about his situation um, impact his, his responses here. Verse 9. Oh, yeah, that's the one he went out and then came back. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, surprisingly, and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. Verse 11 will make you roll your eyes. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. You can just imagine his wife and family sitting there listening like, oh my gosh, here he goes again. Like how many times has he bragged to us about all these things? Again, People who are insecure and constantly have to tell other people about everything they've accomplished in life or all these things that have happened to them because they're not stable in their own identity, and so they're always sharing these things. Verse 12, 
Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Well, let a gallows, fifty cubits high, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now there's an irony that it would be really easy to miss in this situation. Back in chapter 1, when the king in this situation, King Xerxes, when his wife, first wife, Queen Vashti, wouldn't come in front of him, they had a law and a decree made to go out into the kingdom that told the people, hey guys, take control of your house. Like men, you can't allow your wife to do whatever they want. You've got to take control of your house. Well, what's happening here? Haman doesn't have control of his house. His wife is telling him what to do. Like in this situation that he looks like he should be big and powerful, guess what? Insecure people are not particularly secure. Insecure people very easily will let other people begin to make decisions for them, and this is what you see happening with Haman. You get to the end of chapter 5, and it's dark. The situation is dark spiritually. The people of God are facing death. It's a situation that doesn't look good in any, any possible way. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now this is fascinating. This tells you a lot about what's going on in, in the book of Esther. Most places in the Old Testament when you have a defining moment in the story, it's because someone had a vision or a dream, something miraculous happened. The entire story of the book of Esther turns on the fact that the king ate Taco Bell the night before. Like, the entire story changes at this point. The fact that he has a bad night's sleep, can't make it through the night, is the turning point in the story because he can't sleep and so he needs someone to read a, a good bedtime story to him. And so they bring out the book that chronicles all the things that have happened in his life. Verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, hey, what, what honor or distinction has been given to Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, uh, nothing has actually been done for Mordecai. And the king said, hey, who's out there in the court? Now Haman just happened to enter the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told the king, hey, Haman's out there standing in the court. And the king said, well, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, well, he obviously has to be talking about me. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, well, hey, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and let the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, 
And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hey, great idea! <laughs> Hurry! Take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Oh, you can just imagine how badly this burns Haman up. He thinks that the king is going to lavish all these good things on him, so he builds up the rewards, and the king says, yeah, good idea, give, give that to Mordecai. Now, I don't know particularly why, when I think about this story and the way it develops, when I think about King Haman, I think about King George III from Hamilton, and he's like trying to be happy and say, say something good, but inside he's just burning up over the situation, and so he is so angry about what's happening here. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Well, that's not the encouragement he was looking for. <laughs> he thought he was going to run home and maybe they were going to say nice things to him. And they're like, I think you're in trouble here. Like, I'm not sure this day could get any worse, but it's about to. Verse 14, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. Chapter 7, verse 2. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said again to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated, if we had just been sold as slaves, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king rose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, just as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Now, King Xerxes is probably not the right guy to be... Uh, judging or lecturing other people about treatment of women, but he comes back just as Haman is falling on the couch begging for his life from Esther. You almost get a little bit of an a, a echo of the Joseph story with Joseph and Potiphar's wife about the timing uh, of a situation that looks 
like it's in, improper. And so you get some of that same story wrapped up here. So the king comes back in, verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, those gallows are actually standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Well, 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 how the turns table. Uh, here Haman had established these gallows, thinking it would lead to Mordecai's death, and it actually comes back on him. And he finds that it has led to his own death. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther arose and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleased the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing pleases, seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite which he wrote to destroy the Jews. Now there's something interesting that comes into the story from history at this point. You may have heard of a phrase, if someone says that a law can't be changed, they say it's like the laws of the Medes and the Persians. It just can't be revoked, it can't be changed. If a law is put into place, you can't go back and change that law. This was a working practice in, in the Medo-Persian kingdom here that, that King Ahasuerus was over. So the king, we're not going to read all the following verses here in, in chapter 8, but the king says, hey, you know what? I can't change that law because I've already made that law that said that they could go out and destroy the Jews. But here's what I can do. Even though I can't change the old law, we'll just make a new law. And the new law will allow the Jewish people to defend themselves if they're attacked. So you go down a little bit further to verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11. And these letters are sent out into the kingdom, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on the day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So he makes a new decree, a new edict that says, you know you're going to be attacked for being Jewish. You know that Haman put this plan into effect. But I'm making a new law that says you are allowed to defend yourself on that day when those attacks come. And so in chapter 8, it begins to play itself out a way that the Jews are able to protect themselves. And, and there's rejoicing about this. And you get down to chapter 9, verse 1. So chapter 9, verse 1. In the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day 
when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Underline it, circle it, highlight it, write it as the heading above the title page of Esther in your Bible. This is the phrase that explains the book of Esther. The reverse occurred. Death was planned. Darkness was over the land. There was no way that God's people were going to be able to escape the situation. And what had been planned for evil, the reverse occurred. And God brought victory for the people. Where it looks like there was only going to be death, life came. The book of Esther is a story about reversals. It looked like one group of people were going to succeed. It looked like one man was going to have his day. And the reverse occurred. And the beautiful irony of this and the way that this would have worked in an ancient context, who is the hero in this story? It's a woman. The very men who were trying to dominate the kingdom are brought down by this woman who trusts in God and takes a step of faith in this situation. One thing was planned, and the reverse occurred. Now, chapter 9 details how the Jews defended themselves, and the number of people who were killed, and the way that Haman's family was ultimately hanged as well. You get down to verse 20 of chapter 9, after all of these things have taken place, and there's a lot of destruction, a lot of killing. Again, the book of Esther is just not PG-rated. Um, it, it's R-rated, X-rated in some areas. It's, it's a difficult chapter to read. Esther even asked for a second day for the people to be able to defend themselves. You get down to verse 20, though. And it says, Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from morning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. What's happening here is the establishment of the Jewish holiday that's called Purim. If you have Jewish friends, coworkers, neighbors, you may have seen uh, pictures of them celebrating Purim. This year, 2022, it's March 16th and 17th is when uh, the Jews will celebrate Purim. And it's a celebration. The word Pur, P-U-R, is the Hebrew word for casting a lot. The reason the holiday is called that is Haman had cast die, had cast a lot to determine on what day he was going to annihilate the Jewish people. And so the lots, the fate was against the Jewish people, except the reverse occurred. And so it's a, it's a celebration of how God took an impossible situation and brought salvation to his people. And it's a holiday where it was meant, this whole situation was meant to destroy the Jewish people, and it actually brought them together. And you think about the significance that this holiday would have had, had in the early part of the 20th century, going through the Holocaust and the way all the destruction that was planned against the Jewish people and the way that they were brought back together around this holiday, particularly trusting in the Lord's provision. Here's what I want you to see this morning. This whole book, 
is about the work of God's salvation. And when we are talking about God's salvation, we are talking about him doing from what a human perspective is impossible. That God brings the great reversal. He brings the great reversal for his people. And here's what I want you to hear this morning as we get ready to wrap up. This work of salvation, this great reversal, is God's work for your life. The cross is built. The tomb is sealed. Darkness spreads across the land. It looks like evil has won. And what does God do? He breaks in with the light of the resurrection. In your life, your life is going one direction. Your life is headed down a particular path. And God, in his grace and mercy, brings a great reversal. I was this way, and now I'm completely different. And the only thing that happened in the middle was him. Like, he's the one. My life was going this way. It was shaped this way. It was headed this way. And because of God's grace and salvation and mercy, now I'm new. Now I'm different. Now I am saved. When God does this work in our lives, he takes us from death to life. This is the great reversal. This is the great reversal that we celebrate every single Sunday when we gather together. That the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In sin, in sin, our lives are headed toward death. Not just physical death, but eternal separation from God forever. And yet in his mercy and grace, he sent his son Jesus to take on your sin, to defeat the power of death so that you would have life and life forever. This is the greatest reversal we could ever imagine. And if you're here this morning and you have never experienced that salvation, you said, my life is dominated by the fear of death. My life is dominated by the reality of sin and shame and guilt. Friends, God has made a way. He works that great reversal in your life. And he takes us from what looks hopeless to a life of rejoicing and celebrating together. We live in a world where we mourn, but we don't mourn as those who have no hope. Some of you this last year, there's been a lot of mourning. There's been a lot of difficulty. But even in the middle of that darkness, you have hope because of God's salvation. And he takes us from striving and fighting to a place of rest and peace that we strive to get ahead in life. We strive to dominate other people. In our insecurities, we're constantly comparing ourselves to one another. We battle against one another. You fight your own mind. And God says, just relax. Just trust. I bring peace and hope and rest to your life. And friends, here's the, here's the thing. This great reversal, this work of salvation that God brings, it's through the cross, not the sword. In the book of Esther, you see the people seeking to find salvation through having to defend themselves with the sword. And yet with the coming of Jesus, the salvation of God comes through the cross, not the sword. So that when we experience his salvation, our whole lives become different. Our whole lives become upside down. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. That our lives are shaped by the cross and not the sword. Why? 
because God has brought a salvation that can only come from him. In your life, have you experienced that salvation? Do you know what it is to trust in Jesus for eternal life, for him to do what only he can do? And if you do know that, remember what we see in the people of God here is they celebrate that salvation together. They remember that salvation and they hold on to it because it's gonna shape the way that they're going to live as the people of God. I wanna pray over you in just a second. After I do, the only appropriate way to end the book of Esther might seem a really surprising way, but it's to take the Lord's Supper. You come to the book of Esther, and the book of Esther is pointing us to a picture of salvation that we know comes through Jesus. And as the church, when we gather together and we take the cracker and we take the juice and we remember that our salvation is because of the body and blood of Jesus, friends, this is a great celebration. But it's also a good chance for us to look at our own lives. God, what do you want to do in my life? How are you shaping my life? If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, can I ask you to use this time to consider your own life? Is today the day that you would trust in Jesus for salvation? Let me pray for us, and we're going to celebrate. We're going to have this time of worship together. Father, thank you for the book of Esther. Uh, It's a story that we probably know in part from maybe a Sunday school or vacation Bible school or, or hearing about the story along the way. And God, even though your name doesn't show up directly in the book, it's a story that teaches us so much about how you work in our lives. God, in a world of so much darkness and death, through the cross we find salvation. Through the cross, our lives are changed forever. God, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. And thank you for the way that that hope unifies us. That we not only celebrate that salvation individually, God, but you bring us together as your people to celebrate. And God, I pray if there's anyone here today, maybe someone who sat in church for years uncertain about their salvation, maybe a someone who's with family because of Thanksgiving holiday, maybe someone who's just here with a friend from school or a friend from their neighborhood. God, I pray today that you would draw them to trust in Jesus for salvation. God, use even this time of taking the Lord's Supper to cause us to reflect on our own hearts, our own lives. And Father, we devote this time of worship to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.